Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we are proud to present to you a special talk featuring Cheryl Strauss Einhorn, author of the new book, Investing in Financial Research, a Decision-Making System for Better Results, in a conversation with Lakshmi Bodraj, Executive Director of the Parker Center for Investment Research at Cornell University's S.C. Johnson College of Business. Cheryl Einhorn is the creator of the Area Method, a decision-making system for individuals and companies to solve complex problems. Cheryl is also the founder of CSE Consulting and the author of the award-winning book Problem Solved, a powerful system for making complex decisions with confidence and conviction. Cheryl teaches as an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School and has won several journalism awards for her investigative stories about international, political, business, and economic topics. You can learn more by visiting her website, areamethod.com. Lakshmi Bojaraj develops and maintains corporate relationships for the Parker Center, advises students with an interest in asset management careers, and runs several signature events for the Center and Johnson. Lakshmi has been featured in the Financial Times and Bloomsburg Business Week for her work in promoting women in the asset management industry and in numerous other media outlets discussing the center's work. Cheryl and Lakshmi's conversation took place in front of a live audience at Cornell University's Sage Hall on Wednesday, March 20th, 2019. We hope you enjoy their talk. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. My name is Lakshmi Bodraj. I'm the Executive Director of the Parker Center for Investment Research here at Cornell University. And I'm joined here by our guest of honor, Cheryl Strauss Einhorn, who is an award-winning journalist and author. And we're here today to talk about her new book, Investing in Financial Research, a Decision-Making System for Better Results. Uh, This book is actually hot off the press, having just been released a few days ago. So it's a real treat to have Cheryl here in person to talk about this book with us. So thank you, Cheryl, for joining us. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for having me. It's a real thrill for me to get to be here. I'm a Cornell alum. I'm a double Cornell parent. So I'm just really excited. And Cornell University Press published this new book, and as Lakshmi said, it had its official publication date on Friday. So thank you so much. Yes. And before we dive into the discussion, I'd like to just take a couple of minutes to talk about Cheryl's very impressive background. And as you mentioned, first the Cornell Connection. She's a graduate of Cornell University's College of Arts and Sciences. And following Cornell, she earned a master's degree in journalism at Columbia University. She is an award-winning journalist, having written for publications such as Barron's, CNBC, ProPublica, and the New York Times. And she is also an adjunct professor of both journalism and business at Columbia University. And we're delighted that Cheryl is also teaching for the first time this spring at Cornell Tech, uh, where she is instructing graduate students in engineering and business on financial decision-making around startups. She's here today to talk about her new book, which was published by Cornell University Press, and draws upon her concept of the area method, which we will get into in the discussion. Um, She is also the author of a previous book focused on this method called Problem Solved, a powerful system for making complex decisions with confidence, which won a number of awards from the business press and was a 2018 International Book Awards finalist in the general business category. So the way we're going to structure this discussion is after posing some questions to Cheryl, which we expect will take about 40 to 45 minutes, we'll open up the floor to you for your questions. In addition, there are snacks in the back, so please help yourself at any point. And following the event, we'll have copies of Cheryl's book available for anyone who would like to purchase them and have uh, one signed. So thank you again, Cheryl, for joining us. So um, for my first question, I'd like to start with um, your first book, Problem Solved. Um, It it focused on personal and professional decision-making 
So why this new and separate book on financial and investing decisions uh, in particular? So the reason why a separate book is, is two reasons. Um, first of all, I think that a lot of people find financial or investment decisions to have some different components of general complex problem solving personal and professional decisions. There's really how is it that you would do uh, due diligence on a publicly traded company? How would you think about detecting signs maybe of fraud or deception? What does it look like to really evaluate the business model of a company? And so I think that that was one part of my thinking. And the second thing is, is that I wrote this book in part for the students who I teach at Columbia <coughs> Business School. I actually initially wrote this book a couple years ago and road tested it for several years with the students. What kind of things did they need outside of the classroom where they needed a little bit of extra time and attention that they could spend with the material or to guide them in their own due diligence? So, so those were really the two main reasons. And so before we dive into the actual area method, if you could talk a little bit about the origins for what made you come up with this idea? Uh, what, what was the motivation behind it? So as Lakshmi said, my background is in investigative journalism. I spent a decade as an editor and a columnist at the business magazine Barron's. And while I was there, I ended up specializing in what you might call the bearish company story. Those are stories that take a skeptical look at a company's finances or at their strategy. And sometimes when those stories came out, there'd be a very large share price reaction. Sometimes the stock exchanges would halt the trading in the shares of those companies. Several companies went out of business. A CEO went to jail for 10 years. A company got raided by the FBI. And although journalism really does celebrate sort of truth to power, it weighed sort of heavily on me that I knew that there was also a very human toll to these stories. It's not just somebody's investment portfolio. It could be their retirement account, but it could be that they work at the company, or you could be a customer of the product or service that the company provided. And one of those companies, for instance, was a company called Polymedica. They're the largest maker of diabetic test kits in the United States. Well, this is something that many people rely on several times a day to test their blood sugar levels. And so I just started to think about, well, who am I? Right? I'm a middle, middle class kid from outside of Boston. It was a lovely upbringing. But you know, how do I know what kind of assumptions and judgments and biases I'm bringing to my work? How do I know that I'm listening well to the sources who are giving me their story ideas? And how do I know when I'm looking at a data set that I'm really considering how I'm approaching the way that I see and understand numbers and information? <coughs> and at the time, this new research was coming out saying, well, we're all flawed thinkers. And they were basically saying, be more aware. And I just thought to myself, that would be hubris for me to just say, I'm going to look at a data set now, and I'm going to be objective, and to think that I could actually meet some close standard of objectivity. So I thought, given my background in research, what if I invert that idea? What if instead I go all in on this idea that I'm a flawed thinker? Could I then set up a construct to control for it and counteract some of my cognitive biases, better focus on the incentives and motives of the other stakeholders who I'm dealing with, and really try to think about expanding my knowledge while improving my judgment? So that's how I put it together. I was looking for a way to do a more ethical job at work. And over time, when I started to think about, well, how could I describe this system, since I then later began to teach it at Columbia, I realized I needed an organizing principle, something that somebody could remember that could speak to the actual steps of the process. And that's where I came up with the idea of the word area, mm -hmm. the area method. And so those letters are an acronym for the steps of the process. And I liked that because I thought about, well, there's always an area of investigation or an area in which we're making our decision. And so I thought that could be a nice way to talk about how to think about organizing it. And so tell us about the area method. What does it stand for? And if you could relate it to the idea of researching a stock, for example, because 
um, a lot of the students in the audience here are in the investments track, and I think that'll help them um, kind of think through what this method is. Sure. So first, the organizing principle, what is new to the um, research and pedagogy related to decision making is that the area method is a perspective-taking process. And the reason why I like perspective-taking is it gives you a beautiful two-for-one. By pushing yourself out of your own perspective, you can better understand the incentives and motives of the other stakeholders involved in your decision, but you're also gaining distance on yourself and that can allow you to more easily be able to identify where you might be making assumptions and judgments and then to challenge them with evidence. And so the steps of area are absolute relative, the E's are exploration and exploitation, and the final A is analysis. So the first A, absolute, is primary source information from close up on the target of your decision. Think of the area method as the opposite of Google. Normally, you want to know something or you want to make a decision and you type it into Google. Well, immediately, you're in every perspective at the same time. And the problem with that is you can't get your truth meter running as an individual to say, does this make sense to me? Because you're in every single perspective. So area actually separates out the sources of information so you can get close up on each one. So in absolute information, Say you're evaluating Chipotle, and I pick that because do we all know Chipotle, right? And do you remember that a couple of years ago, this was a company that had a national food <coughs> illness outbreak, right? So let's say right after the illness outbreak, the stock is cut in half. It's a really quickly growing company. Is this a good investment idea? Just as a short term you know, thing to be thinking about, right? Already it's cut in half. Would you go long? Would you go short? Already it's down a lot. So in absolute information from close up on the target, you'd go right into the SEC filings for Chipotle, and one of the things that area guides you to so that you constantly have your truth meter running so you're vetting your information is you go to the least influenced information. So instead of starting from the management discussion, you'd go right into the numbers, into the charts and tables, because although not every decision should be made based on the numbers, understanding the numbers that an organization provides can give you an idea of what they think is important. So do the numbers make sense to a reasonable person? Is there a relationship between or among them? Well now by the time you've read the management discussion, you already have a sense of here's what I think the numbers say. So you're setting up the ability to vet that information. How does management describe the numbers? Does it make sense? Does it contradict what you think? And if it does, why might that be? Because you're constantly looking to vet that information. So that's a sample step that you would do in absolute. In the next concentric circle of information, you're in relative. These are sources that are somehow connected to the target, but are not from the target. Think of it like secondary or tertiary information. So again, with this example of Chipotle, you might look at, well, what do industry sources and the media have to say? What are they talking about in terms of the food outbreak? Does it seem to be something that is profiting McDonald's and Pepsi instead, um, for instance, or other fast food chains? Do people seem to be still coming to the restaurants? What does Health and Human Services or the, the different um, FDA officials have to say about what's happening? In area E, that's exploration and exploitation. I call them the twin engines of creativity. And they're about really upgrading your research beyond document-based sources. So area exploration gives you an idea of how to identify good prospects and ask them great questions. So it's about interviewing. And then area exploitation is about turning your lens inward on yourself as a decision maker so that you can really think about your assumptions against your evidence. So in area exploration, maybe you talk to your local Chipotle manager, right? Are people coming by? How are the new food safety procedures going? Maybe you think about um, have the new procedures either changed the amount of time it takes to get through the line, or has it changed the taste of the food? Their whole value proposition was food with integrity, locally sourced and delivered fresh to the restaurants. Well, now with very increased food safety standards, they had to look much more like a McDonald's where the food is coming to centralized locations to make sure that it is scanned and surveyed for health procedures. Does that alter the food taste? 
In area exploitation, here I give you a series of exercises that I've learned from experts in other fields, like the intelligence community, or investigative journalism, or medicine. One of my favorite exercises has a complicated name, but it's a simple construct. It's called the Competing Alternative Hypothesis Exercise, and I got it from a declassified CIA manual. And here, all you're doing is you're lining up all the evidence of what you've collected against the hypotheses that you have for what could be the outcome. Is this company going to perform below its cost of capital, at its cost of capital, above its cost of capital? That could be one set of hypotheses. And what you're looking for in something like that is you're not looking for, for data to confirm your hypotheses. You could have a lot of confirming data, but if you have one insurmountable hurdle, that hypothesis is not going to work and it is going to fail. So instead, what the competing alternative hypothesis asks you is, which hypothesis has the least disconfirming data? It's a more rigorous way to think about the evidence. And then in the final A analysis, you're cobbling back together the different pieces of information you have and coming to conviction. And so one step that I really like in that, and that you may have heard a lot more about lately because I've seen a couple articles about it, is the pre-mortem. So the post-mortem, the joke is everybody benefits but the patient, because it's the autopsy after the patient has died. The pre-mortem, you now think you know what kind of a decision that you might want to make. But even before then, you actually sit at your computer or with a piece of paper, and you tell the story of how, in this case, the investment might fail. And the reason why you do that is because you want to look for what are the actual pathways to failure, what is the weakness in your thesis? And then, to some extent, you can set up a construct to not only try to counteract that type of failure, but you're also now holding yourself accountable for what you thought might happen. And again, it's a way for you to be able to prevent yourself from having an evolving hypothesis. And so at the end, you can say to yourself, would I take this opportunity or not? I actually assigned Chipotle to a student of mine after this outbreak, and he ultimately came to the conclusion that he would recommend, even with the shares down so much, shorting them, and he gave his target price and his target time horizon. Um, and it, in that case, it worked out very well. It doesn't always work out so well, but the nice thing about it is with something like area, you're building yourself a beautiful audit trail of what you've done and what you've thought <coughs> about the steps that you've taken. Right, you've collected evidence from a variety of perspective to give the target an opportunity to give its best foot forward. Then you've collected information from outside sources. You've then gotten it off the page and into real life by doing the interviews. You've assessed the quality of your own thinking in the exploitation phase. And then you've still thought about failure in analysis. And so you really are building a book of yourself as a decision maker that over time can allow you to say what worked and what didn't so that you can continually grow and improve in your decision making. And one of the really neat things I think about your book is that you do include examples of real world companies that your students have analyzed and you have their thoughts and their evolving thoughts as they go through each step of that area method, which I really appreciated. So I wanted to pick up on, on one aspect of that analysis as it relates to um, researching an investment idea, which is evaluating the quality of a management team at a company. This is a question that we get asked a lot um, because students feel like there are some things that they can do to put forth that analysis, but uh, typically they feel like, I don't have access to management, I can't talk to them, I can't really good, get a good gauge on how to assess their quality, and you have some great pointers in the book. Can you share them with us? Oh, thank you. So obviously there's several places in the area method where you can look for ways to evaluate the quality of management. One of the easiest is to go into the proxy statement. Right? The proxy is going to tell you what is the incentive compensation plan, why was it constructed that way, and so you can get close up on the company's viewpoint as to what are the performance metrics that they've got. You know, how much cash, how much equity, what kind of intervals, and so on. But then in relative, what's beautiful is you can say, okay, in that next concentric circle, 
What is it within its industry? Is this standard or non-standard? And then what is it within best practices for governance teams, right? Are they using EBITDA? Well, that's a bit of a, you know, what are some of the types of pressures that that might put management under that might not necessarily be so aligned with good performance for the company? Um, and so you get a second opportunity in relative to evaluate what you've learned in absolute from the proxy. And then obviously in interviewing, you get a chance to think about, well, how is this person as a capital allocator, right? And I think this gives you several different vantage points where, you know, let's say the company is using, you know, a two-year return hurdle um, for how they're thinking about performance to compensate that executive management team. Well, why two years? Does that make any sense for that industry, right? Should it be five years or three years or, you know? Um, and, and so I think that what's interesting about evaluating a management team and using the lens of incentive compensation is that there is no one perfect incentive compensation plan. So it's a bit of a moving target, but I think that makes it a very interesting area to really scrutinize. You know, one of the companies that I assigned my students just a couple of years ago was Avon. This is a company that's been going through a lot of different transformations. Well, they had recently changed their entire comparable company set, and they've made it much easier, right? So how do you think about that? Now, if you'd only looked at one proxy, you wouldn't know that, right? So the other thing that I would say is when you are going into something like SEC filings, you've got to look at a couple. Because what you really want to see, or let's say you're looking at the earnings transcript or you're listening to an earnings call, it's not one call. It's what does management say are the targets? How do they perform against those targets? Is it the same targets on several calls over a year, year and a half? Or are those targets changing? And what does that tell you about the quality of management or their ability to be a good capital allocator? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that um, we're all prone to biases in our decision making. And um, so what are some of these, these biases? What, what are the most common ones that we fall prey to? And how can this method help us to mitigate that? OK, so 85% of us think that we're better than average drivers. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, so the optimism bias is a really big one. I think the second one is confirmation bias. And, you know, we all have this issue where we look for data that tends to confirm a prevailing hypothesis. We just do. Uh, we have the liking bias where we trust people more or listen to them more because we like them. And so we tend to question them less. So I think those are just a couple um, easy ones. I think the reciprocity bias is much more subversive than you might think. Somebody does something nice for you and you want to do something nice for them. Maybe you don't evaluate it the same way as if you know, they hadn't done something nice for you first. Um, and so I think that, you know, we all have them, and it, it's unrealistic to think we're going to catch them. One of the things that I really try to do in the book, and, and especially in Problem Solved, which is on personal and professional complex problem solving, is to show where the main case studies that I'm featuring have these biases and how it really hurts their ability to solve a complex problem. Because if you just picture for one minute, picture yourself going into your local supermarket. Close your eyes just for a minute. You're in your local supermarket. Now go get a carton of milk, right? You probably can navigate that really pretty easily. Now open your eyes and picture that every time you go to the supermarket, it's a different supermarket and you still need to get a carton of milk. Well, so now it's taking you a lot longer, and you can't run as many other things in your mind because you actually either need directions or you gotta look for the sign for where the dairy aisle is. And so we really need these biases because researchers tell us we make 40,000 decisions in any given day. That's everything from what side of the bed to get up on the morning to what kind of a late night snack at night and how big a snack. So we need them. The problem is, is they don't go away when solving for complex problems. So instead, we need a way to pry open cognitive space to allow for new information and new insight. And so that's what this is really trying to tackle. And in your book, you talk about the importance of, of doing your own primary research, the absolute part, before 
um, taking in some of the other information from uh, on doing comparables analysis or bringing in the cell side perspective, for example. And I want to sort of get at that a little bit. What do you think is the role of cell side research? What is the utility as well as some of the drawbacks in using cell side research in this process? Right, so in my class at Columbia, I don't let them use any cell side research. The goal is to really be okay with being very uncomfortable, right? The first time you ride a bike, it's miserable. The first time you do anything new, it's uncomfortable. And so the first time you do something like the area method, it's uncomfortable. It's not natural to separate your sources of information. It's not natural to go to the numbers first. But the reason why you're doing that is you want to build your confidence and your conviction that you can solve complex problems. There's a tremendous amount of resiliency in that. If you say, I as a reasonable person can break down and tackle a complex problem, it gives you the willingness, maybe even the courage, to take on bigger and new challenges. So in not using the outside sell-side research, you're getting a chance to just build your sense of confidence as a reasonable person and a decision maker. That being said, we use Bloomberg and Capital IQ and these other things, and they have their biases in them for what they're weighting, um, what they're even collecting. For things like sell-side research, I discuss in the book, because it's realistic that many people use it, that you want to think about some of the inherent conflicts of interest that are in that, right? Are they also a banker for this particular company? Um, is, for instance, um, this a stock that's very widely followed, or is this a stock that only has a few analysts that are following it? That makes a big difference in the research and in sort of the herd mentality. So I highly recommend, in absolute, you stay with the perspective of the company or the financial organization or investment opportunity that you are investigating. And then in relative, once you've begun to think about it from your own perspective, then if you want to go into sell-side research and see what they have to say, you can compare it to what you have. If you go right into the sell-side research first, it's sort of like the Google example that I gave. You're not going to unlearn the model that you saw or the central point that the analyst took. So you're not going to get another chance at being your own fresh set of eyes. So I do think that there is a role for it, but I think that you do yourself a disservice as a smart individual to not give yourself an opportunity to say, what do I have here and what do I think it means? Great. So I want to get at this um, concept of exploration and exploitation a little bit more. Um, you call them the twin <coughs> engines of creativity in the book. What does that mean, and, and can you elaborate on that? Um, again, tying it to the investment process. Sure. So creativity has two components, right? There's your breadth of research, think of that as exploration, right? And your depth, which I think of as exploitation. And so I give you in exploration a lot of the tips that I've learned as an investigative journalist, and I give you what I call the interview formula, which is GP plus GQ equals IQ. Good prospects plus great questions give you your interview quality. And then I go through in the exploration chapter, what's a great question? Right? There are different types of questions. There are feeling questions, knowledge questions, opinion questions, information questions. And the goal is not to ask every question. The goal is to identify what would you do with the information if you had it. And then to derive your questions from there. So again, using this idea of the inversion. right? So that you are getting at questions that actually give you actionable information. And I give examples of what that might look like, whether you're asking a simulation question or an opinion question, so that you can really see examples of how this plays out, and then you can apply it. And I give you a whole group of lists for where to identify good prospects. How would you find the people that you actually want to interview? Relative is a great place to do that, because in one of the steps of relative, you're conducting a literature review as I mentioned, where you can look at who does the press quoting, or who's writing the academic articles, or who are the regulators that are meaningful in this area, and then you can value them and think about 
well, which, what type of information can these different people give me and how would I think about putting them in order? And then also I go through how do you take notes? And so I should just mention that throughout the area method, one of the updates to the research in pedagogy <coughs> is that I build in strategic stops all along the process because decision-making doesn't really deal with the fact that you need to have moments to chunk your learning. So when should you stop and what should you do when you stop? So I call the stops cheetah pauses. Yes. So why the cheetah? Well, the cheetah's prodigious hunting skill is not its ability to accelerate like a race car. It's actually that the cheetah decelerates by up to nine miles an hour in a single stride. So that's better than the acceleration because now you're talking about agility, flexibility, maneuverability. And those are the things that you need in a quality research and decision-making system. So when I tell you to take a cheetah pause, I have a cheetah sheet, think of it like the graphic organizers of the area method, and they give you tips on either where to look for information or questions that you may want to bring to the data that you've been collecting so that you can analyze it. So that is um, a guiding um, framework all the way through the area method. And then in exploitation, this idea of really pushing yourself as a decision maker and again challenging these assumptions and judgments, I think really brings a whole new way to think about how we actually conduct a comprehensive due diligence process and hold ourselves accountable. And how should we think about sort of the weights that you put on each part of the process? Of course, they're all important, but um, in the investment process, for example, we often tell students it's so important to create a differentiated view. At the end of the day, people want to know how is your view different from what the market is putting out there in order for the stock to move to your target price. Would you say that is part of the exploitation and exploration piece of the, of the process? I would actually say to some extent it comes much earlier because one of the most um, off-putting parts of complex problem solving for many people is how do you start, right? There's such a wealth of information and how do you even frame the problem? So at the very beginning, the area method says to you, invert that too, and instead ask yourself about your vision of success, which is what has to happen in the outcome of the decision to know that the decision has succeeded. It's not just that the stock has gone up or it's gone down if you're thinking about shorting it. It's that it's gone up or down for a specific set of reasons that you've identified and that you've deeply and creatively investigated. Those I call your critical concepts the one, two, or three things that you're actually solving for, that if the decision has worked out well, you've been able to understand those things. So in the Chipotle case study, just coming back to that because we were talking about it before, what the student identified very early on is, would customers come back? What is the rate at which they would come back? And what then does this do to the growth prospects of this company? It had been a very quickly growing company, opening a lot of stores, right? So he ended up focusing on those three critical concepts, and over time, you're constantly updating and iterating those critical concepts. If you nailed them the first time, that's terrific, but most of us were a work in progress, and we need to update and iterate. But ultimately, what he determined was that although customers would come back in the case of Chipotle, that they were coming back slowly, that they were very worried about the impact since several people had died as a result of this illness outbreak, and that it did really impact the efficiency, the unit efficiency of the stores based on how they were changing the food processing procedures, and that as a result of this massive shift in, in the company, away from sort of food with integrity, which had really been their Bible, that they were going to have to also rethink their growth prospects. And so that's why this idea of having this vision of success and identifying your critical concepts becomes so powerful. You don't want to investigate everything. You want to identify those few things that will get you to the vision of success that you've identified. And I like um, what you say in the book about writing a thesis statement at each stage of that process, right? So you, you've done your absolute analysis, you go on to your relative, and then the other pieces of it, and 
it really lays down for you what you've uncovered uh, during your investigative process, if you will. So, so. Right, so the thesis statement is something that you basically are doing at these cheetah pauses. And it's a very, it's a, you're asking yourself basically, so what? What did I learn here? But that's a very powerful thing to ask yourself. Often when we're in that data collection phase, you know, we've got the SEC filings out, and we're looking at third-party research, and we're looking at what the news and the media and industry publications have to say, and we're going along in a very linear fashion, and we're not building in these strategic stocks. But in order to make your work work for you, these pauses that initially slow you down really speed up the efficacy of the process. And so in the very beginning of the book, I think the very first cheetah sheet is the thesis statement recipe. What goes into the thesis statement? And then it gives you an example of one. And all throughout the book, I give you examples of how the students themselves came up with their thesis statement. And it's really interesting to see that because some of them start off very positive in the first few steps of the process and then they've uncovered something that gives you cause for pause and then it, it starts to change and you can see that until they come to their very final investment conclusion. So that's a really useful exercise. I Thank think. you. And towards the end, when you're in that final analysis phase, you basically bring all the thesis statements into the conference room around the table with you and when you lay them out, you have a truncated version of this longer audit trail that area is giving you. And so you can see how your thinking and your work has evolved. And this becomes something that can really sort of show you how you've been updating and iterating your work and your thinking, which is what you want to be doing. And if you're not, I would hope that it would raise a question, right, as to why am I not learning through this big process that I'm going through? And again, this can really help you have an idea of, well, how are my assumptions and judgment? How am I checking my gut? Because we all want to listen to the gut. It's telling us something. What we want to know is, when should we pay attention to it? And when should we not? Sometimes it's going to give us good information that something doesn't sit right and maybe we want to dig deeper. And sometimes it's a red herring and it's just leading us astray. I want to talk a little bit about financial fraud um, and identifying financial fraud. You've done that in your career as a financial uh, journalist, and there are some red flags that, that you talk about in the book, and obviously financial fraud is an ongoing theme in the industry with Theranos being right. the latest example of that. So talk to us about what some of those red flags are and, and maybe tell us some, some stories that you've uncovered related to that. So I started thinking about this because somehow I ended up stumbling on a bunch of frauds early on at Barron's. And then, you know, that sort of begets people coming to you to suggest, oh, I don't think this is quite right. Take a look at this or take a look at that. And so initially for myself, I noticed there were some real commonalities across frauds. And so I started to put together a fraud template, which I then put into one of the courses I was teaching at Columbia at the time and then I actually put into the book because I use it with my students. And so a couple very popular um, things that can be a sign that can make you think about could there be fraud, but it could just be a warning sign, is is there very controlled access to information, right? If you think of some of the very famous frauds, and in the book I use three famous frauds that I think you're going to know of because I think it's an easier way to go through this kind of a template. So I use Enron, the energy trading company, Bernie Madoff, and I use BreeX, which most of you are probably too young to remember, but was one of the largest gold frauds. Um, and they all basically had real controlled access to information. Bernie Madoff did not let people come in to understand what his trading algorithm was. Right? Enron claimed it was a black box, and that was their special sauce, and they couldn't tell anybody. And BreeX would not let any third parties look at the samples that they collected of the gold that they had. Another sign, and this is relatively an easy one to spot, is what kind of an auditor does the group have, right? Bernie Madoff was a very large firm, but had a very tiny auditor, right? And you know, um, sometimes you have an auditor in for a penny, in for a pound, right? And obviously Arthur Anderson went under as a result. Um, 
But you know, this is another thing that you can look at. A third example, just to give three, is you know, has somebody really influential signed on? Enron had people on the board of directors that were in very senior positions at one point in our government. Right? Bernie Madoff was the head of the NASDAQ exchange. And for BREEX, they had very big gold companies like Barrick and Placer Dome also signing on. They wanted to get in on this gold mine that they thought was going to be the largest gold mine ever. They never got to individually assess the samples, but they signed on. So did somebody who seems like an authority figure sign on? And I'll just give you one example of a very fun company that I wrote about that went out of business, um, which was this company called Pinnacle Oil. They had something called the Stress Field Detector, and this was before there was all this satellite technology, so it shows my age. But they had a black box that you put on an airplane, and then they just fly it over the ground, and it tells you where there's oil. And, you know, so... <laughs> so you know, I spoke to the person who developed the stress field detector, and I spoke to, you know, other people at <coughs> major research organizations and universities like Cornell to ask about whether something could exist, and, you know, oil executives. And, you know, oftentimes, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, which again comes back to this idea of you wanting to build some of your own confidence and conviction that you can solve complex problems and vet information on your own, right? The company was telling me they had this brand new technology and they were going to transform the industry. Well, that's fine. I don't have to know everything. I actually knew nothing about this industry, but I could ask questions as a reasonable person and I could identify good prospects who are smarter than I am, more knowledgeable about I am and they can help guide me not only on better questions to ask, but then also in how to listen to the answers. And it also ties right back into our biases, right? You talked about um, how we tend to trust an authority figure or you know, even as we think about stocks and who holds stocks and smart money and all of that. And, and so um, we always find ourselves asking after the fact, how did we get taken in by this charismatic CEO in the case of Theranos or, or um, Madoff? And, and, and so I think that it, it speaks to the sort of the complete process that you have to undertake using a framework to try and get at a good decision. So what's happened since um, you began writing and talking about area? You mentioned you've, you've um, taught this method at Columbia. What has been the impact on students there? And I know that you also work with high school students and you formed a new consulting company, Decisive, to help with decision making uh, questions. So tell us about so Problem impact. Solved has turned out to be this incredible blessing, really. Um, you know, it's given me an, an opportunity to work with lots of different groups, everything from, you know, counterterrorism professionals at the State Department to, um, to these high school students. And I had a national nonprofit, The Future Project, approach me soon after Problem Solved came out. And they said, I love this. Could you help us develop something for high school students? So I you know, have three teenagers, now one's in their young 20s, and I was just thinking, well, where do they spend their time? And as we all know, a lot of it is spent on technology. So I started to think about, could I develop a couple of digital modules that break down parts of the area method into like 20-minute digital experiences? And you can do it on your phone or on an iPad. And so on a rainy Sunday, about a year and a half ago, I um, put together a boot camp with the Future Project, students from Newark and Brooklyn, they're mostly um, lower income students, to just think about, would they be interested in learning decision making? What did they think about this one digital module that I had just quickly put together with the Future Project's help? And at the end of the day, they said that they loved it, 100% of them said it was valuable, and 100% said they'd recommend it to a friend. So I then developed a couple digital modules. The first one teaches you a little bit about yourself as a decision maker, and it categorizes you into one of five decision-making archetypes. And I call it your default decision-maker archetype. I actually call it your problem-solver profile in, in the module. 
but to actually describe it, I'd call it your default decision maker archetype because it doesn't tell you what you are going to do necessarily in the future, but it does tell you how do you tend to do things in the past. Um, and so it's not proscriptive. And then it gives you a template for categorizing you into one of these five different types of problem solver profiles, and then it tells you what are some of the strengths of self-identifying that way, what are some of the potential pitfalls, some of the key cognitive biases associated with self-identifying that way, and then it gives you a little bit about a historical figure who solves problems in that same way, and it leads you through a couple of worksheets to help you think about capitalizing on your strengths, limiting some of these potential blind spots, and how to interact better with the other decision-making archetypes. So this year, I've been expanding the pilot into a lot more high schools, um, and I was just, the program is called Decisive, as you mentioned, and it was just approved by the Department of Education for New York City Public Schools. So over 500 high schools will have an opportunity, if they're interested, to sign up and have the city pay as part of their new college and career access program, which is very exciting. So that's one thing that's come out of this. Wonderful. So it's both a self-awareness exercise on what type of decision maker they are, and then they're applying it to big decisions like where to go to college. Right. So the second module basically helps you with your vision of success. It's called an introduction to decision making. It helps you with your vision of success and deriving your critical concepts. And the third module is called you're not as open-minded as you think, mm -hmm. and it is about spotting signs of assumptions and judgments. And then, again, for whatever the high-stakes decision is that you're trying to solve, helping you to think about where you're making assumptions and judgments and how you can vet those. And then if this expanded pilot is successful, then what I will do is um, I will update and iterate based on the feedback I get and hopefully develop more modules. And I've been working with a professor at MIT's Poverty Action Lab on the evaluation piece to really try to make sure that I'm thinking about um, the evaluation in a way that really tests the modules against the growth metrics that I hope that the students can achieve. Exciting stuff. It is. It's exciting. So the foreword to this book was written by Tony Blair, and uh, I think he said that he wished he had this manual when he was prime minister. So ha tell us about that connection. So I originally met him um, because I've been very interested in, um, in charity work and in um, investing in um, things that help people get along better. And I define that as nurturing environments, experiences, and relationships, and he has a charity that is trying to build religious pluralism around the world. And so they might link up a school that, let's say, is in Turkey with a school that is in Texas so that they can talk about things that they have in common and better understand what is the basis of the religions and what are some of the teachings that, that we each um, might have so that we can have a more inclusive and diverse society. And so I initially met him through that, and then I started doing some work for him. And then one day he said, well, what's new with you? And we usually talk about him. So I said, well, I, I just wrote a book, and I'm trying to see if I can get it published. And he said, well, what is it about? And I said, it's about complex problem solving. And he had a good laugh. And he said, well, Cheryl, I know something about that. <laughs> right. And he asked to read the book, which I thought was incredibly generous of him. And I didn't expect that he would read the book. And he asked me to send it to him. And he called me a couple weeks later. He said, I love it, and I'm going to write your forward. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I think we have about 10 to 15 minutes for questions from the audience. I'd like to open it up to you now. Dola. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, that was a very insightful talk. I actually have one clarification that I would like to request. Is, uh, so you mentioned that it's, it's important to know whether uh, influential people have signed on to identify fraud, and you mentioned Enron and some other uh, individuals and companies as well. Uh, so how exactly would that help to identify fraud? Uh, so in, it's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked me for the clarification. Thank you. So in the fraud template that I have in the book, I have at least a dozen factors. And what I say is no one of these factors necessarily means they're fraud. And actually, if you have several of these factors, it doesn't mean that there's fraud. 
but it does show that for these very famous frauds that I line up against the template that I've put together, that they tended to have a lot of them. And if you tend to see several or more than several of these, you might want to think about what are some of the questions that I might want to ask so that I could better investigate that. So thank you. And, and the, uh, I, the question I actually had was on, so you mentioned that small cap such companies that do not have you know, much analyst coverage uh, tends to be probably uh, you know, mispriced. So that's something I always kind of struggle to understand. Like it's in, kind of intuitive that if analysts don't cover a stock, they may be like, you know, mispriced in the market. But at the same time, whoever is buying that stock, like it's also supposed to do some sort of due diligence before buying that particular company, yeah. right? So I would argue with your premise, first of all, a little bit because you know you can have a company that's very widely followed, right. which doesn't mean that it's not mispriced. Um, but I do think that there are um, companies that are not as widely followed may have some very good opportunities for value-added research, but you may also have a much tougher time seeing the stock align with some of the fundamentals that you think that you're seeing. Because if there's just less information in the market, or if you have a different set of holders, maybe you have far more individual investors than institutional investors. Maybe it's not just less covered by Wall Street, but maybe those are people that are just not watching the information as closely. So even if you were to get information out <coughs> into the market, maybe there'd be less price reaction. So early on, you talked about the proxy statement and when you want to do evaluate management and, and their quality um, to the company. Um, could you kind of kind of touch on if you have some examples of one who's you know putting together good incentives or you know how they're being comped or who they view as peers and maybe also touch on one that maybe isn't. I'm not sure what do you mean by one that is and one that isn't. You mean one uh, that has an incentive plan and one that doesn't? One that's doing it, I guess, more appropriate than, than the other. Um, you know, I think that to, I think that, that could, to some extent, be a matter of preference, oh. right? You know, there's different kinds of investor. If you're a value investor, you might want to see different metrics than if you're a growth investor, frankly. Um, you know, but that being said, you know, some compensation plans, like if you look at Walmart's plan, for instance, it's very heavily tied to the actual operations of the business. That, to me, seems really pretty good, right? Um, you know, something like AMC theaters, right? Well, the movie theater industry is convulsive, right? There's a lot more competition for your eyeballs. And movies are in theaters for a shorter amount of time. They have a totally different kind of CEO. They actually have a CEO who has a second day job. So understanding that compensation plan and what that might look like, you might conclude that that is appropriate for that kind of a company that really could use a tremendous turnaround. Or you might say, you know what, I still would rather see something more like the Walmart model. So I don't think, again, this is a, an interesting gray area that I think is a great area for research. Um, and I just gave the keynote speech, that, speech last week at the National Business and Economic Society conference. And one of the people whose talks I went to was a PhD student who's actually really beginning to look at this area of sort of matching up different types of executive compensation plans and um, sort of where this is tending to go because I think governance issues in general are getting a lot more scrutiny now even than they had before and I think it's going to be an area where we see some changes coming in the future. Um, it seems like from most of your work you tend to focus on equity but have you ever had your writing for parents ever taken you to like the fixed income side? Or so it has occasionally taken me to the fixed income side. The main class that I teach at Columbia Business School is based on individual equity research. I always have them look at the other side of the equation because it's not fair not to. Like in the Chipotle, for instance, you could look and say, well, that's a really clean balance sheet. Well, they don't put any of their leases, right? And you know, it would be completely incomplete to not understand what's happening with that. Um, so I think you make a terrific point. Um, some of the stuff you talked about earlier is kind of updating your thinking as you go through the research process. Does this book touch on at all um, 
let's just say you've made an investment based on an original thesis, you've identified what your uh, critical concepts are. Um, does it talk at all about updating your thinking as you go through earnings cycles um, with the company that you've invested in based on an original thesis? So that's a great question. So this book takes you into um, how do you actually make the investment decision. But I think it would be great to write maybe a couple blogs on how do you listen to the earnings and update and iterate because you really would want to match that against the audit trail that you have and um, you would want to be able to say this, this is not what I signed on for. They're doing something different and then give yourself a chance to update the research to say do I like this and did I miss this or do I not like this and I want to get out. So thank you, that's a great point too. I'm always struck by, I remember when I first started in equity research in my career, how amazingly professional and polished and confident all management teams sounded, right? And so how do you sort of dig through that and really start to think about, okay, it, you know, is what they're telling, first of all, does it resonate with the business environment? And really teasing out operationally how this uh, company's gonna perform a lot of them receive amazing amounts of training, right, in, in public speaking and presenting so and IR calls. When I, was, when I was actually writing the book, I updated my research on how companies are handling earnings calls mm -hmm. because it has become very professionalized, right? A lot of them tape very far in advance what they're going to say. So the actual remarks themselves may not even be live which I think is very interesting. Um, and I think for the way that investing in financial research mentions when to listen to an earnings call, I think that this is another place where you can have your truth meter running nicely because what I recommend as the order of operations is that again, you're first going into the SEC filings. You're not starting with an earnings call. If you start off with an earnings call, you're totally at sea. You haven't developed your foundation. Is that foundation porous or is it solid, right? So by going into the SEC filings first and figuring out what their numbers are, how they explain their numbers, what is the management discussion, thinking about how long management has been there and the incentive structure for managed. By the time you get to the earnings call, are they talking about the value proposition for the company in the same way as it was discussed in their written materials? If not, why not, right? This, they're given a whole series of platforms with which to discuss their story. The SEC filings are obviously written by lawyers, so that's a heavily regulated way that they talk. But then they also have their press releases. Well, that is much more forward-facing to the investor and shareholder community, right? And they have a lot more leeway in how they talk about things. Well, what do they talk about? How frequently do they talk? Is it about material things, or does it seem to be really rather promotional? If you were to overlay that against a stock price, <coughs> a stock chart, do their press releases move the stock or not? Are they meant to, or do mostly earnings move the stock price, or do earnings even not move the stock price? So there's a lot of different ways, even before you get to the earnings call, you're actually listening to the management team, where you can be thinking about the quality of the decision making of the team. And then of course, the most interesting part of the earnings is not the company, it's what questions you're getting from the shareholders. What are they interested in? Are they interested in what management's talking about, or are shareholders on a totally different tact? And why might that be? Any other questions? We probably have time for one more. Yes. Uh, I think cost of capital, I mean, obviously, but you perceive that as a pretty important uh, metric or evaluation <coughs> criteria. Is that right? Well, I think, you know, I think thinking about how the CEO allocates capital in all the forms of capital, right? How does the CEO do it in terms of how he or she is thinking about actually investing in the business, not only you know, in, in terms of, let's say, its research and development, um, but also its people, right? How is the CEO thinking about how he or she spends time, and how would you think about the return for that time? I think that's a really important question. 
right? I mean, and different types of, there are many different types of CEOs, and one is not necessarily better than another, but at a certain part of the cycle for that particular company or that particular industry, it might be. Right? If you're in a turnaround, you might want a very different person than when you're in the growth mode. A new company might want something very different than when you're a middle-aged company, and so on. And so really thinking about the quality of capital allocation, I think, gives you a lot of clues as to what does this CEO think is important, because this is how he or she is spending his or her time. Well, thank you very much, Cheryl. That was Cornell author Cheryl Einhorn speaking with Lakshmi Bodraj, Executive Director of the Parker Center for Investment Research at Cornell University's S.C. Johnson College of Business. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Cheryl's new book, Financial Research, A Decision-Making System for Better Results. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. Thank you.